signs in the book of James today. Somebody's <laughs> excited about James. Um, so, a little over a year ago, I was standing at the checkout counter of a convenience store. And the clerk is starting to make small talk with me, and my field of vision starts to close. And I'm trying to smile and nod, and I'm getting really sweaty. And the whole store is starting to spin. And I grab onto the counter, and I grab onto the little tighter, and my field of vision starts to open up a little bit. I'm still sweating. Take my card back, and I'm like, that was not good. So, whether this was a good decision or not, I don't know. I got in the car, and I drove to the walk-in. I made it to the walk-in, so I guess it, it turned out all right. And they poked at me for a few minutes, and they said, you need to go to the, to the ER right now. So I called my son, and he picked me up, and he drove me to the emergency room, and um, they could not figure what was going, what was going on. Um, my, you know, I hadn't had a heart attack like that, um, but my, my heart was doing some, some wacky things. So they admitted me, and they hooked me up to monitors, and they poked at me like every 30 seconds. Um, and it turned out that my pulse was dropping down into the 30s. Um, I, my resting heart rate is low to begin with, but like 30s is not good for anybody. Um, and they did not, they could not, they could not figure it out. So, uh, but otherwise, I was, I was the picture, the picture of health. So, they uh, they installed an internal cardiac monitor. I'm kind of like Iron Man now. I have an arc reactor in my chest. <laughs> Um, it's, it's about the, the size of a AAA battery, and this thing takes snapshots of my heart rate throughout the day. And if I get to feeling funky, I have a little wand on my keychain that I wave in front of my chest, and it takes another picture. And these pictures get uploaded to the doctors, and they can, they can look at them in real, not real time, but close to real time, and monitor what's going on. My pulse is one of the things that are a vital sign, right? They measure our basic body functions. And it was so important, and it was doing something so wacky that the doctors wanted to monitor it throughout the day. Like, they didn't want to keep me in the hospital, but they needed to keep tabs on what that was, what that was all about. Our vital signs are important because they are an indication of how we are doing, right? They are, they are signs of life, and they are predictors of longevity. Um, and as we go through the book of James, we're going to talk about and read about and discuss things like prayer and God's Word and how we handle trials and how we handle our words and how we handle our money and pride and humility. All of those things are indicators of our spiritual health. They are not, they are not what earn us spiritual life. They are not what gives us relationship with God. 100% commitment, faith, belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His perfect life, his innocent death, his triumphant resurrection, and his, the, the hope and the waiting for his glorious return. That unwavering commitment to those things are what give us spiritual life. Our vital signs are indicators of that life. I want to read you a quote um, from a scholar named Douglas Blues. And he wrote a, an entire book on the book of James. It's 
kind of explaining it verse by verse. Nate, can we throw that quote up there? Not that one. That one. Which one? Slow down. <laughs> yes. James' earnest desire is that Christians leave behind this unstable, inconsistent, halfway faith and progress towards a wholehearted, unvarying commitment to God in thought, word, and deed. Unvarying commitment. Folks, there's a big idea for this morning, okay, and for this series. Unvarying commitment. What you are committed to, what you are committed to first and foremost, will shape how you think, how you feel, how you act, what you say, and what you do. Whatever you are most committed to will drive those things and will shape those things. So we're gonna um, we're gonna jump in to the, the book of James and this idea of, of unwavering commitment by looking at one verse. We're gonna start with James 1.1 and we're gonna go from there. And I promise the whole series is not gonna take five years. We'll do bigger chunks than one verse at a time. But for this week, we're just starting with one verse. Nate, you can put that up there. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. So just leave that up there for a few minutes, Nate. The, that three-section um, opening, intro, is a common epistolatory opening. There is the sender, there's the recipients, there's the greetings. James doesn't mess around with any kind of flashy greeting. We don't need to like dive into the original language. It's just greetings. Like he wants to get down to business. He says, hey. The recipients to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. This is significant for a number of reasons, right? The 12 tribes were the Old Testament people of God. It's a reminder of spiritual heritage. Right? God's chosen people were indicated, were included in these, in these 12 tribes. Because of their lack of commitment, because of their disobedience, their lack of faith, they were scattered. And for all intents and purposes, they were really no longer a people. And they were barely kind of recognizable as those, as those 12 tribes. But it's important, the, the fact that James used that description of them is important for a couple reasons. The Old Testament predicted that the people of God would grow to include Gentiles, foreigners, slaves, people that were not part of the original people of God. And that's what it was doing. That's to the people James was writing, these new believers in Jesus that were the new expanded people of God. The Old Testament also prophesied that a Messiah would come and he would gather the people of God together again. So James was writing basically to the church and the church was scattered. Experts tell us the book was written somewhere around 48-ish, somewhere in there. During that time, it was an oppressive Roman rule. The Roman government just kept a, an iron fist over the people that they, that they occupied. And there was a persecution that was going on that was just causing the people of God to have to go in different directions for their own safety. Much like today, 
right? Fortunately, in this part of the world, we don't have to fear for our physical safety, but our brothers and sisters around the world do. We face a hostility towards the gospel here in the States that is unfortunately increasing. As a people, we feel that misplaced, displaced, scattered vibe. James writes to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. That's us. He's writing to the church of God. So with all of that history about who the people of God are, I want you to try to keep that in your mind. And there'll be reminders of it as we go throughout the series. Um, but James's uh, admonitions, encouragement, challenges to his original readers are the same as they are for us. All right, finally, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what we know about James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up in the same home, right? So if you, you know, if you grew up in a home with a golden child, older sibling, think about how bad James had it, right? Why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> so, um, and here's the other thing. The Gospels tell us that James and Jesus' other brothers did not believe in the things that Jesus was saying and doing when he walked this earth. As a matter of fact, they thought he was nuts. There's a, there's a part in one of the Gospels that says Jesus was created such a ruckus that his mother and brother showed up to take charge of him. Right? Like he needed to be corralled because he was out of control. So while Jesus was alive, James didn't connect with him, was not following him, did not give his life over to God, did not understand what was going on. Um, but James has a meeting with Jesus after the resurrection. And it's just like, there's one line in a New Testament book that talks about how Jesus appeared to James. So based on their relationship growing up, the fact that James thought Jesus was nuts and he didn't believe him, that, that must have been some sort of powerful interaction where James was able to take the things that he saw Jesus say and do when he was alive in his human body and connect the dots. Like the resurrection did something in James that just like opened his eyes. Like, oh my goodness, my brother is really who he said he is. And so James committed, he committed his life to Jesus and to spreading the word and to trying to glorify God. And he went on to become the lead elder at the church in Jerusalem. And as such, he had a big part in some major decisions that shaped, that shaped the early church. But maybe, maybe what is most um, significant is what James doesn't say about himself. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not say, hey, I'm Jesus' brother, so listen to me. He does not say, hey, I'm the honcho, I'm the head elder. Listen to me. He says, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, you and I, my readers, we're in the same boat. Our job is to serve Jesus. The rest of the book is founded on this idea of an unwavering commitment to serving Jesus. So, help us drill down into that a little bit more. Let's, let's talk for a minute about the idea 
of servanthood in, in ancient Israel. Right? So James, a servant of God. In ancient Israel, there were two um, kind of varieties, I guess. There, was, there were slaves and there were servants. And the slaves were kind of what we think about when, when we think about slavery in the Americas. There were slaves of the Roman Empire. History tells us that almost two-thirds of the population at that time in ancient Israel could have been these slaves of the Roman Empire. They were prisoners of war, they were, they were criminals, um, and they were treated harshly, and they were treated unfairly, and it, they did not have a choice in the matter. The servants of ancient Israel, that's a different thing. Okay, let's put up the, um, that list of characteristics. Right, so you couldn't just like grab somebody up and make them your slave. Right? It was make them your servant. That was not part of the deal. The Old Testament is filled with these laws that were meant to protect servants. I read one commentary that said, if every one of those commands were followed, it would be impossible for a servant to be treated poorly. One of those things were if, for whatever reason, a servant were to leave his master's house, where he ended up, they didn't have to return it. It wasn't considered property the other kind of slavery. He could leave. It was set up to help guard people if they found themselves in a bad way. If something happened, life circumstances, whatever, and they were facing homelessness, they were facing destitution, they could sell themselves into indentured servitude. It was a choice they were making to become, to become servants. It was this idea of subjection and submission without without the chains, without the bondage. And God also set up this system of, of Sabbath years, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Every seven years, all the servants were to be released of their obligations. But, if they wanted to stay, if they wanted to willfully commit to their masters, they could do that. In order for a servant to be a servant for life, it was a choice of the servant's behalf. And let's put up that verse from Exodus, please. So this is what the servant would say, hey, I want to stick, I'm, my seven years are up, I'm done, but I want to stay with you. So this, but the servant declares, I have my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free. Then his master must take him before the judges he shall take him to the door of the, or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. So when we take all of that, what we know about the servants of ancient Israel, we put it together, we come up with this idea of a willing servant. Somebody putting aside their freedom and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I want to follow you. To help us understand that a little more, we're going to go through really, really briefly. Um, if you guys you can follow along at uh, CrossroadCT.info slash latest messages, and all the scripture that I'm using is in there, and you can reference it uh, for yourself. But just real quickly, what was expected, what the biblical writers were encouraging servants of ancient Israel to do, make that list please. Be obedient to their masters, pretty straight up. Respect your masters. Treat them well, treat them with dignity. Desire to please. Make it your goal to do the very best that you can for your masters.
patience in hard places. If your master's having a bad day and he's harsh or short with you, bear with it. And still work just as hard for him, even in those hard times. And faithfulness. That you would do everything for that master in the same way that you would do it well to the best of your ability, whether your master was watching you or not. Right? So that's the idea of the of the New Testament um, servant. Unwavering commitment. Right? What we started with. What you are most committed to will shape everything you think, everything you say, everything you feel, everything that you do. So why would James start the book by saying, James, the servant of God and Jesus Christ? Because he wants to crown his readers then, his readers now, in this idea of this unwavering commitment to Jesus. And that's where our life comes from. And we go throughout life, and for whatever reasons, whether it's the messages we get from the world, our own feelings of insecurity, whatever, whatever it might be, um, we mistakenly give that commitment to other things, right? And unfortunately, that could be a really long list. Maybe it's money and career that we commit to above all else, and that's what shapes our mindset and our attitudes. Um, maybe it's a maybe it's an ideology, just something that. We believe that this is this is right, and anybody who disagrees with me is just a complete moron. Or maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's the idea of physical and, and emotional and social comfort that anything that disrupts that, like your main goal in life, is just to minimize that and, and do everything you can to minimize that. Those are all things that might vie for this idea of total commitment from us. But I want to dig a little bit deeper into three three specific. Um, three specific areas. So the first one is that you can just put the vital signs thing up. Um, is this idea of our bodies and how we look. Body image, self-image, whatever you want to call it. And don't get me wrong, I mean, God created the amazing thing that is the human body, right? It's a temple of the Holy Spirit where we're supposed to care for it, we're supposed to try to live healthy lives, we're not supposed to take it for granted. However, it's a good thing. It's not the ultimate thing. If you are at a point where you spend more money on a gym membership or workout gear or spa treatments than you give to the poor, that could be an indicator, that could be a vital sign that you're committed to the wrong thing. If you just expend a lot of anxious energy about how you look, about how you perceive other people think you look, that's, that's wasted, that's wasted energy. Because it's not part of what God sees when He, when he looks at you. Um, Jesus wants us to take care of our bodies as a good thing and as a gift from Him. Not an ultimate thing. The idea of needing someone or relationship is also something that we commit to 
that we mistakenly commit to instead of fully committing to Jesus. Um, the parent-child relationship is a gift from God. The husband-wife relationship is a gift from God. A friendship is a gift from God. Good things, not ultimate things. The, the love and the support and the nurture of the parent-child relationship is, is a beautiful thing, right? Even at both ends of the circle of life, right? We do that for our kids, and then our kids do that for us when we, when we get older. But when our definition starts to become that relationship, like that I need that person, be whole, be real, if that person determines my mindset, my mood, it's, we're misplacing that commitment from the ultimate thing where it belongs to a good thing. When you think about um, the husband-wife relationship, it was created to be an intimate, like a covenantal, lifelong, sexual relationship. And it's created to be a good thing. But if, if you are in a, in a, a marital relationship and if, or, oh, if only my spouse were X, or if only my spouse did Y, then everything would be all right. So I'm going to commit everything I have and everything I do to making my spouse do whatever, or helping them do whatever, or getting them to do whatever. That's taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. And the same is true of our friendships. I mean, let's be honest. With some, of, some of us walk through life without a lot of friends. And it's only like, if I only had like one or two people in my life, or, or if I only had a friend like Susie, then everything would be the way it should be. So I'm going to do everything I can. Sometimes those end up being really bad decisions. So I have that person that I need in my life. It's a good thing that God gave us as a gift and we make it an ultimate thing. And then last, there's this... Uh, um, well, let me pause for a second and say this. Like I said, this list is really long. And as I was thinking and praying about, you know, which I couldn't cover everything that's on that list. But I really felt God pressing these things, um, these three things, the idea of, of our self-image and our body image, and the, um, the need for somebody else. And then this last one is the need to be needed. Right? And I, I see this in my own life, and I see this in the lives of people in our community in two different ways. Um, one of them is, is with our kids. Our kids are little, and we want to do everything that we can to protect them and to set them up for success. And what happens when we take that good thing, that gift of a child, and we make it an ultimate thing, is that we, um, we smother them and we do things for them that they should be doing themselves. And that's when they're little. It doesn't get any easier when they get older. My sons are 17 and 20. Right? If we, if we try to parent them like they were 10 and 7, it would be horrible for them and horrible for us. Right? We cannot base our self-worth 
on the success of our children. That need to be needed, that need to be in that relationship where somebody is dependent upon us can really like, steal that commitment that, that Jesus deserves. The other part of that is um, they give service as an escape. And so don't get me wrong, I'm not talking out of both sides of my mouth. We're talking about being a servant of God. Right? And Jesus was a servant and I'm calling. The church wouldn't exist without servants. But when service becomes an escape, when, when we have to be in a position where we're needed, it's damaging and it's taking a good thing and not making it even an ultimate thing, but making it a bad thing. Right? Some of us, life has been really hard. And some would say unfair and just rough. And the idea of being caught with those thoughts and having to deal with them is just overwhelming. And so some very good-hearted, good-natured people will do anything and everything they can to not have to deal with that stuff. So they'll just serve. They'll serve other people until they're blue in the face. They will insert themselves in situations that probably don't require their help. They'll put themselves in situations where they have to serve other people to such an extent that they're doing harm to themselves. The need to be needed is a commitment that will just steal the spot that Jesus deserves as master of your life. So our looks, no matter how hard we try, how much money we spend, our looks are going to fade, folks. We, there's nothing we can do about that. Right? It's just, just going to happen. Um, our relationships um, to need somebody else to, to fill that void that only Jesus was meant to fill, you will crush people under those expectations. If you expect somebody to always be there for you, to be perfect, to always have the right word, to always put your interests first, I mean, we're human, folks. We're flawed, right? If you place those expectations on somebody, you will crush them and you will be disappointed. And then finally, if, um, if this need to be needed is what becomes your overwhelming driving commitment, um, you are going to alienate people and you're going to do such harm to yourself. So, um, I'm reading this book called Unoffendable. The author's name is Brant Hansen. It's not like a, a crazy, deep theology book, but it's just really, really good. And I want to share with you a quote that, um, that he put in that book. We make things ultimate when we see the true God as a route to these things, or a guarantor of them. God wants us to meet him for him, not merely for what he can provide. So, Jesus... Even if he never provided for me, protected me, or worked out the hard things for my good, even if he never did that ever again, he would be worthy of my praise, my worship, and my commitment because he is perfect. He is eternal. He is self-sustaining. And he would deserve all that just because of who he is. But, but, because... He is all those things. He is perfect. He is self-sustaining. He is timeless. 
He does protect and provide for me and work out even the hard stuff <coughs> for my good. This is how, um, I'm going to actually read these verses from down here. This is the, um, the book of Matthew. We're going to look at chapter 6, verse 33. Check this out. Last Sunday, before um, I got up and I was praying and I was reading, and my wife made me a little bookmark with the pictures from the 25th anniversary on it. How awesome is she? That was so cool. Um, so, the, uh, we're in Matthew chapter 6. And I think we're going to start in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to this life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Did I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these? If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O ye with little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So James, in encouraging us to view ourselves as servants of God and of Jesus Christ, shares the mindset of his big brother Jesus. They call out, the whole book of James is going to talk to us about things we should be committing to Jesus and the things that will try to steal that place of commitment. Just like Jesus pointed out in, in that passage, the things that try to steal, steal that pop spot away. Um, but what is so cool, what is so cool is how Jesus ends that passage. Seek first the kingdom of God. Commit to me, unvarying, unwavering commitment to me, and all these things will be added to you as well. How cool is that? So Jesus not only taught the idea of servanthood in passages like Matthew 6, he lived it. But Jesus as a servant is at the very heart of the gospel. If there was ever one person who deserved praise and worship and elevation, it was Jesus. And he sought none of it. Instead, he was born in obscurity, under what the world would call questionable circumstances. And he grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. He learned the family business, working with his hands. He was all but unknown for the majority of his life. And when he burst onto the scene, there were no trumpets, there were no fanfare. He came wearing the metaphorical earring of a servant. He was homeless. He went from town to town, looking for the lost and for the least, so he might serve them. He came and he fulfilled every one of the 600 plus laws in the Old Testament. 
because we couldn't. He did that for us. He came serving us in that way. And he came and he challenged people to a higher standard. Not a whitewashed veneer of religion, but an unwavering commitment to God that resulted in a change from the inside out. And the religious leaders didn't like that. And it put him on the spot on more than one occasion. Jesus lived a perfect life and he challenged the religious establishment. And because of that, he was put on trial. Of trumped up charges and lying witnesses. The magistrate presiding over the whole thing found nothing wrong in him, found no fault in him. My personal opinion, he was a bit of a coward. He turned the decision over to the crowd. And the crowd said, death. Death by crucifixion on a Roman cross. And on that cross, Jesus performed the ultimate act of service. He carried the weight of your sin and of my sin and the sin of all eternity, humanity, past, present, and future. And he did it willingly. He stepped into it willingly. Born in obscurity, died in innocence. Jesus came to serve. He came to serve us and he came to serve the will of his Father. And that's the example for us. I'm going to ask the band to come back out here. And I know I did, we did a lot of work this morning. We covered a lot of ground. There was a lot of history. There was a lot of lists. But I hope, um, our hope and our prayer over the course of the next chunk of time is that some of that you can kind of think through. Right? We just, the next couple of songs are going to be about Jesus and how awesome he is. And how worthy of that unwavering commitment he is. Maybe you're in a spot here this morning where you are tracking with Jesus and he's the master of your life and you are serving him. That's awesome. Say thank you. Just spend the next 10, 15, 20 minutes just saying thank you. Maybe you're in a spot where something I said or more likely something the Holy Spirit whispered in your ear. There's something that you have mistakenly committed your life to as ultimate. And God has now brought it to light. Do some business with God. In your seat, tell God what that thing is. Ask Him to help take it away. Go to the back of the room and ask those folks to pray with you and for you about whatever that thing might be. Maybe you're here this morning and this is all just, you don't know what to make of anything. So I would encourage you to just try to sit and be still. If you want to sing, sing. If you want to listen, listen. But please, think and try to keep your ears open for that still, small voice of God that is going to speak to you over the course of the next chapter.